The Small Business Rundown is the official podcast of the National Federation of Independent Business, the member-driven voice of small business. NFIB and our members advocate to keep America's small businesses strong and independent in Washington, D.C., all 50 states, and the nation's courts. Welcome to the Small Business Rundown, your inside source for small business news and analysis in Washington, D.C. and state capitals. I'm Adam Temple, NFIB's Senior Vice President of Advocacy. The U.S. national debt is just over $31 trillion, and the debt limit, which is the total amount our government is legally allowed to borrow, is around $31.4 trillion. But what is the U.S. debt exactly? And what does it mean for the debt to be higher than the debt limit? To answer these questions, our guests today are Holly Wade, the Executive Director of NFIB's Small Business Research Center, and Bill Dunkelberg, our Chief Economist, to explain the debt limit and what it means for a small business economy. Bill, thanks for joining us on the Small Business Rundown. Holly, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Adam, for including me in the podcast. I hope the information that we provide is very helpful to our small business owners out there. All right, Holly, I'll let you take it from here. Well, great. So we'll just dive right in, Bill. And with that, we always call you Dunk. And that's how I've known you for the last 20 years. But I don't think folks are familiar with your backstory of your nickname. Sure, we have to go way back in history to talk about that. That was my ninth grade history teacher, Mr. Gerard. He was really a nice guy. He liked calling people uh, Miss This and Mr. That uh, using your last names. And Dunkelberg was kind of long for him. And so he picked Dunk. So he would just call me Dunk, which was quite different, but I liked it. And so that, that stuck with me uh, forever. So you've been NFIB's chief economist for decades now. But during that time, you've been a professor at various universities. And before that, you were at University of Michigan. So would you mind just giving us a kind of a brief history of your background and kind of how you came about being NFIB's chief economist? Sure. Well, I spent nine years at the University of Michigan getting all my degrees, and that's uh, how I learned how to do survey research, because the last five years of my time there was, of course, in graduate school, and uh, to pay my way through grad school, I became a study director at the Survey Research Center, which did the annual survey of consumer finances that the Fed now does, and also the surveys of, of consumer sentiment, which are very popular today. So when I finished my degree, I luckily got a very nice offer to go teach at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. And so I took them up on that and I spent about eight or nine years there. From there, I took a job at Purdue University and the Credit Research Center as associate director. Got a uh, big grant from uh, the government. I got a Golden Fleece Award from Senator Proxmire because he said it was a waste of money since they all knew what I was going to say anyway after doing all the studies that we did. But that was a good uh, time at Purdue as well. And then out of the clear blue, I was offered a, the opportunity to go to Temple University as dean of the business school. Now, I didn't have a lot of management experience, but I visited them and, and decided real quickly that, you know, even though I don't know what I'm doing, I couldn't make it worse. So that was uh, where I kind of ended up. How I got hooked up with NFIB is an uh, interesting story. Wilson Johnson, the president at the time, 
was trying to find ways to become more effective in Washington, D.C., as they represented the small business interests there. So he hired a couple of, of guys, uh, one of them a professor uh, in health at Berkeley, and they went around the country trying to find how they could be better or make NFIB better. And that tour that they were on, it was suggested to them that they contact me at Michigan, which they tried to do and found out that I had just moved to Stanford. And so that turned out to be pretty uh, pretty convenient because NFIB's headquarters were you know, just a couple of miles away from Stanford University. So I met with Wilson and uh, said, I think what you should do to become famous is start collecting data from small businesses. You have a couple of hundred thousand member firms. Nobody in Washington has any good data on small business. So NFIB can take the lead here and, uh, and become famous. And 50 years later, we're here and we're famous. Exactly. You created <laughs> the best survey looking at small firms, and it has been our staple report to talk about the small business economy ever since. It's the greatest thing uh, for advocating for small firms and looking to see where they are and how they operate in the current environment and then being able to look back as you said you know this has been going on this survey has been in existence for almost 50 years we are coming up on its 50th birthday party so it's very exciting and all of the data that's been collected since then has given us just a rich source of history of the small business economy. And I'm glad that you were able to cut down on your travel time by moving to uh, taking the position <laughs> over at Temple so that you were smack in the middle of New York and D.C. So whenever NFIB wanted you or anybody else was looking for the expert to talk about small business and small business financing, you were readily available by train, which was terrific. That was wonderful. Yeah. So let's dive into the topic at hand, which is the debt. So nobody likes to talk about the debt. And when we start talking about debt negotiations, the debt ceiling, the debt cliff, all of the debt-related issues that are starting to come up makes everybody very nervous. And the implications of these negotiations and the debt, all of the things that are related to our growing debt, you know, it, it's, it's tricky. It impacts the economy. So I wanted to start out this conversation by just the basics of what is the U.S. debt and the U.S. deficit, because a lot of times those two words get confusing and, you know, people use them interchangeably, but they are very different. So if you could just start us off by explaining what the U.S. debt is and compared to the U.S. deficit. Sure. Well, let's start with the deficit. Every year, recently at least, Congress spends more money than it takes in with tax revenue. And uh, how does it manage that? Well, it borrows the money from the public. It does that by issuing treasury bonds. Uh, it could be a 30-day bond all the way up to a 30-year bond. These bonds, are, of course, are totally safe from default as long as you think the government's solid, and uh, they pay a return, of course. Uh, they have a coupon interest rate, 
and a lot of people are you know invest heavily in those so deficits uh, happen every year unless and it did happen in some years we get more tax revenue than we get spending then we have a surplus but the deficit is financed by the borrowing and it, it accumulates over time so the total national debt now federal debt is the sum of all the deficits that we've been running and the uh, net of any surpluses that we happen to run. And when we run a surplus, we do pay off some debt, but uh, that hasn't happened uh, re recently. So the total debt now is about $33 trillion, And we look uh, at the budget deficit this year. We expect it to be, you know, too high, way high, a trillion or so, maybe $2 trillion, maybe $3 trillion. So the prospects are at the moment that... This deficit this year, just looking ahead as a projection, could add two or three trillion to the already existing 33 trillion in debt that we uh, we currently owe. I'd like to point out that the size of our debt is now equal to the size of the income that we generate in the United States. So I guess we can say, you know, we everything we earn we owe. Uh, but, of course, we don't have to pay that off right away. We can pay off over time. So that's the that's the issue. Uh, historically, we've had a debt ceiling in, put in place by Congress to try to help manage spending. In the far past, Congress would tell the Treasury, you know, this is you can you can issue the bonds and borrow money all you want up to a limit, some number that the Congress would would set. And that's the debt limit. And that started oh, back in 1917, kind of institutionalized legislatively in 1939. We, of course, ran huge deficits during the war, especially World War II, although we did pay the debt down dramatically after World War II, kind of paid off the war debt. Um, but since then, we've just kind of accumulated larger and larger amounts of debt. Yes. So you introduced the next term that is often confusing is the debt ceiling or debt limit that Congress sets and says, you know, absolutely nothing above that. You know, we're putting some parameters around how much debt we're comfortable with. However, many years lately, especially, we get to the point during the year where we start hitting that limit. And then the conversation turns to falling off the debt cliff. So when we start getting close to that debt limit and the conversation turns to the debt cliff, what exactly are the implications of hitting that limit, not being able to exceed that limit, and looking at this cliff that we could potentially go over? You know, the negotiations historically have gone right up into the day. It's obviously a challenge to estimate when that day actually is and trying to estimate that. However, when they get closer and closer to it, it becomes more critical that they negotiate either a higher debt ceiling or debt limit for the following year to give some room for their accumulating deficits. But when looking at the cliff, what does that look like? What are the implications for the U.S. economy and specifically small businesses? Sure. Well, the cliff is just the point at which um, the government 
cannot legally borrow any more money. We should point out that the that the government is continually borrowing money because that $33 trillion of debt consists of some 30-year treasuries that are now in their 30th year, that is, they're expiring. So there's always a large amount of debt that's coming due, and the government can uh, just borrow more money to replace it. Uh, so it would keep the uh, total amount of debt unchanged. What uh, The situation we have, how, however, this year, especially with the heavy spending we had with uh, COVID and uh, the amount of uh, money that the government poured into the economy to help uh, stimulate it, is that we're, we're now at the point where the government is up against this limit, more or less. And of course, it's hard to calculate exactly in dollar terms uh, how much there is on any given day, but they're going to need to borrow more money to uh, finance the commitments uh, that the government has made, that the administration has made for spending in the uh, in the future. And a lot of those commitments are, of course, kind of fixed. Social Security commitments, for example, interest on the debt, we have to pay that because if we don't pay interest on the existing debt, that would be a default. And that's really uh, not going to be a problem. You hear that word thrown around, but even though we have about $900 billion in interest costs now, which is a big number, the tax revenue that uh, the government takes in every year would be seven or eight, nine times that. Uh, so no problem in paying the debt, uh, the interest on the debt that we owe, and of course, refunding debt as it matures. We can do that. What we can't do is borrow more money to finance more spending commitments for uh, this year and next year. For example, defense spending and, of course, we said Social Security, and, and we do have to get some money to pay interest on the debt. So that's the problem. The debt cliff, I guess, is what we uh, think of as uh, what happens if we default or something, and, and uh, I don't think we'll really do that. But it would be true that if the government can't borrow more money, then there will be bills that it can't pay uh, coming up because it can't get access to the funds to do that. And uh, and that would be uh, a kind of a domestic default, I guess. They might cut Social Security payments. No, that'll never happen. So it'll have to come someplace else. Defense spending uh, is a big number. They could cut that. There are, just, there are a lot of programs that the government could cut uh, if they can't get the money uh, to finance them. And th so that's the issue. And Congress will have to come to uh, terms with the president and uh, they'll have to figure out how much uh, they need and how much spending they are, are going to be willing to finance versus what the administration wants, which is a lot more, I guess, than uh, right now we we see Congress willing to uh, provide. Yes. So thank you so much for the overview. Incredibly helpful, given the enormity of the situation. And, you know, 
These are huge dollar amounts that are difficult to kind of wrap your head around what $33 trillion looks like and how much revenue the U.S. brings in and how to pay for it. And then coming up against that debt ceiling, you know, what type of programs would be impacted and how that impacts the overall economy? Yeah, with the kind of high stakes of these negotiations, it can certainly rattle confidence. And it's great that we have this survey that can showcase what that looks like when we have been in similar situations as we are now with having to go through the process of negotiating a higher debt limit. We have heard, you know, that the, the administration's budget has included a small business surtax on income over 400000 And that would be a huge hit for small businesses. And so, yes, taxes are, you know, that is part of the negotiation. That's part of the administration's budget proposal. It is always seems to be in the conversation and you know higher taxes negatively impacts small firms it's it's money that they can't use to reinvest in their business and in their employees and you know that's why it's such a critical issue for small firms and also why these negotiations can become very uh, challenging unnerving you know the uncertainty of all those impacts on small firms can make it quite difficult. So we've talked about the debt and debt ceiling and all of that, and that's part of the environment that small business owners are having to operate in. And our Small Business Economic Trends Survey that we conduct monthly shows low optimism. Small business owners aren't optimistic about business conditions in the next six months. Certainly, these negotiations over the summer aren't going to help, but it might be helpful to give some context about what our survey is showing now and the current environment of what small business owners are generally operating in. Sure. You you mentioned the Small Business Optimism Index. It's made up of uh, 10 questions that we ask of the owners. We ask them about how they're doing sales-wise, how their profits are looking, those kinds of things. We also ask them how they, what they see in the future, and we find that currently they're very negative about where the economy is going to go. We ask them, six months from now, do you think business conditions will be better or worse than they are today? And uh, we look at the net percent who say better, and that's a huge negative number, meaning far more people say they expect it to be worse than think better. We asked him about the expected real sales volumes, you know, the hours billed and things manufactured and sold, real sales. They're very negative about that as, as well. They think that uh, on balance, real sales are going to be declining. So we find that the only thing that really optimistic about in the index is they we've got record high numbers who have job openings they can't fill outside of inflation which is the number one business problem close behind that is the quality of labor uh, we find record numbers of these owners tell us that they see few or no qualified applicants for the employment positions they have available uh, so that's not a good sign uh, either. So overall, they are pretty pessimistic about where the economy is. The optimism index 
is uh, well below its 50-year uh, average or 49-and-a-half-year average of, of 98. So the index is around 90, and it's been at 90 uh, for the last 12 months or so. So we're not optimistic, but in the meantime, spending is, uh, sales have been okay. Consumer spending has held up well. And, of course, the small business owners would hire if they could find somebody uh, because they can still have they still have an opportunity to make some money. The economy has not yet gone into a recession or a, a major slowdown. And that's certainly been one of the more frustrating elements to so many small business owners is having to absorb those higher inflationary costs for the materials and inventory that they're purchasing and still remain competitive and not knowing how much to increase prices. In our survey, we've seen that earnings are hurt because of inflation pressures on small firms. And then the added frustration of, as you mentioned, that labor shortage where they have sales opportunities and they're losing out on a lot of those sales opportunities because they can't fully staff their, their firm to take advantage of that. So a lot of headwinds, a lot of challenges for small firms, and you know we're capturing all of that in our monthly survey. Um, so great overview of kind of where we stand and through the negotiations of the debt ceiling, you know we'll see where sentiment uh, kind of evolves from here. But right now, as you mentioned, optimism is at very historic low levels and not very optimistic about where things are looking in the next six months going forward. But I want to thank you, Dunk, for joining us on this podcast. This is really helpful to go through the conversation about the debt and the debt ceiling and debt cliffs and debt limits, since we will likely be hearing about it throughout the summer, and hopefully the uncertainty element can remain pretty low, but the conversations will continue to happen. So thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Holly, Bill, thanks for joining us. And thank you for explaining this issue and how it relates to the small business economy. The research y'all do helps NFIB educate folks in Washington and state capitals on Wall Street and elsewhere about the state of the small business economy. And today's show notes will include links to a fact sheet on the debt limit, as well as more information on the Small Business Economic Trends Report. Now, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on today's Small Business Rundown. We'll be back every two weeks bringing you small business news and analysis from Washington, D.C. and state capitals so that you, whether you're a small business owner or a supporter of one, can continue to blaze a trail. The Small Business Rundown is brought to you by NFIB, the voice of small business. You can find us at NFIB.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.